Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to El Inkstained Retros, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, let me tell you something. You seem like you're having a good summer. You seem like you're enjoying the summer. I see tanness present. I feel like you're in the zone. Is this, am I, am I judging this correctly? You may see tanness, but it is fake. Product. So for any listeners who are interested in, I can tell you, I have reviewed, I have tested all of these self-tanning products on the market. <laughs> Chris, you can tell them if it looks natural or if it looks like orange, awful. No, you look sun-kissed. Okay, yes. okay. So for any listeners, we can take reader questions on like the best sunless tanners. So I do you go to the place where they spray you? Well, I have done that, but that is too onerous to do on the reg. This is just like, you know, some little drops that you put in your face moisturizer. Really? Yes. So yes. you have not been basking. Uh, this oh, is Oh, heck no. I am way too vain to bask. I don't want to get cancer or wrinkles <laughs> or like, you know, look like a piece of fruit leather when I'm 70. Well, I it's I think of all of the years where I scorched my flesh playing golf and going out and and roasting and now I am indeed the person who as my son and I were getting ready to play golf yesterday, uh we we're slathering on the SP and I listen, people. It's a little out of hand with the sunscreen now and where it's like a hundred and people are like dipping their <laughs> children. Me. They're That's dipping me. their children in zinc. It's, it's, <laughs> that, that is totally me. It's a I'm lot. Like, I don't want wrinkles. It's a lot. Like, but I, I, we were there with the third. I'm there with the 30. I'm, I'm now a 30 and I'm sure that people will tell me that 30, 30 SPF 30 is not enough, but I want you to know that it's a big improvement over the old baseline. We're basically once a over year. Over the old tanning oil. Well, you know, do you, can you remember Hawaiian Tropic tanning oil? Oh, yeah. Smelled great. If I could find, if, if they made women's perfume like that. Oh, oh my gosh. That's so gross. It's smelled so that good. That is so gross. The, 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 the tropical breeze with the, the, the oily tropical breeze. Okay, I, if we don't get advertising requests for my tan drops <laughs> from that company and from Hawaiian Tropics tanning oil, because the tanning oil. Right. They must be, like, really struggling economically right now, given the rise in, like, you know, don't go out Panic-related. Panic-related yes, exactly. sunscreen. The exactly. earth, like the earth is ending. Parent. Yes, cover yourself in a lead well, jacket. Well, you know, my husband is, like, the color of the snapkin. He's a fair... He's he, a, is, he, he is an Irish... He, se he seems of Celtic origin. Yeah, so he's so pale. And then my daughter has exactly that same coloring, and... You know, it's not like babies are out sunbathing so much, but anytime we like leave the house, it's like, oh, you have the sunscreen, oh, oh, oh. like, and I'm totally like, whatever, I'm very relaxed about it. But they're they're super pale. Well, and I, all I know is when my dad was going to school in Miami, he told me that they used to mix baby oil and iodine to slather on their bodies as they would go cook like bacon. The iodine is like orange, right? To brown, Turns just orange. a little drop, just to the, because what tanning oil is, is a little bit of iod a little bit of darkening agent to accelerate. What? Yes, that's what tanning <laughs> oil was supposed to do. It's supposed to keep your, your fat 
like bacon as it fried in the sun. At the house where I grew up when I was a little kid, they had these sun these sunbathing benches, right? The big giant. I, I can tell you how heavy they were because we had to move them every year. These giant things, and I can remember women, some dudes, but like covering themselves in oil and just roasting out on the hot pavement and wood. People used to do that, and now that would be like smoking, right? It kind of is, kind of is. But um, I do like I do. It's I, like seventy percent smoking. I do. I do like seven. I do like. I do like getting a tan, though. I do. I. I hate when I look in the mirror, and I. I like a bane. Not quite baner would be if I. If I could really have my setting, my preferred setting, it would be just short of a baner bronze. Mine would be quite. Whenever I do get sprayed, they ask you like, "How tan do you want to be?" And whenever I say it, the guy's like, I'm not really sure if that's going to look good. And I'm like, I'm sure it's going to look how I, it's like very, very, very dark. They need a scale where it's like, do you want Trump? Do you want Boehner? Who, like, which? Their scale, like, nobody would choose orange. They have, like, a, you know, the brown scale. And I'm like, very brown, sir. Very, <laughs> very, very br- brown. Like a coconut. Yes. <laughs> okay. It is time for our front page. These are the stories that we thought were most important in the news about the news this week. Chris, you titled this fact-checking abortion goes wrong, but I don't agree with that title, so that's what we will discuss. But you you teed up for us. Well, the fact-checking didn't go right, did it? This is the story this is the story of President Biden in remarks and I may be out of sequence here, but correct me. This was Friday last week. So Friday, the president cited a case in Ohio where the, the story of a young woman who had been- Young the, woman, 10-year-old, right? Oh, was she 10? Yes. Even worse. Okay. So of a girl who was the victim of a rape and that she had had to go to Indiana where they had a less restrictive, that the abortion law in Indiana now is less restrictive than the one in Ohio, she would be able to get access to an abortion. And the right-wing- the right-wing press came hard at Biden on this, saying, you know, this is fake. Fox came hard at him. Jesse Waters had the attorney general of Ohio on, basically saying this never happened. Then, interestingly, the Washington Post, Glenn Kessler, their fact-checker, joined in. And they have since, of course— Kind of, sort of. Well, they have since updated the piece— but the original, so here was Biden's statement. Actually, let's just take a listen to what the president had to say and real quick. Just last week, it was reported that a 10-year-old girl was a rape victim in Ohio, 10 years old. And she was forced to have to travel out of the state to Indiana to seek to terminate the presidency and maybe save her life. That's last part is my judgment, 10 years old. 10 years old, raped, six weeks pregnant, already traumatized, was forced to travel to another state. Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl, 10 years old. So you then have Glenn Kessler, the lead fact checker at the Washington Post, raise an eyebrow at what Biden said, saying that basically a version of what many in the right press had said, which was, 
seems like there'd be a prosecution here if there was really a 10-year-old girl who had been raped. That isn't what he... I I did not think there was anything wrong with Kessler's fact check. He said in the fact check that it was... The story had a single source, and, and he said... He, and he began asking for more information. So he said that the doctor, who was the source of the story, declined to identify the city where the child was located. And where was the, where was the original report? The original report was in a local newspaper in Indiana. And the Indianapolis Star. It, and, and then he said, we contacted child services agencies in some of Ohio's most populous cities. None of the officials we reached were aware of such cases then they contacted the newspaper that declined which declined to provide more information and then his conclusion was this is a very difficult story to check the doctor's on the record but obtaining documents or other confirmation is all but impossible without details that would identify the locality where the rape occurred with news reports around the globe and now a presidential imprimatur, the story has acquired the status of fact. If the rapist is ever charged, the fact finally would have more solid grounding. So I didn't think, I thought that was like totally defensible. But you would agree that that's, he raised an eyebrow, right? I, and I thought that was fair. Yeah. Completely. So, so. he so he, ra- he, ra- he he raised an eyebrow about this. And then, so look, it's certainly true. I have a complicated, I have complicated, substantially negative, but complicated negative feelings about fact checking as a. I don't. Mine are completely negative. And in this case, this was journalistic fact checking as opposed to, I guess, Kessler wasn't fact checking Biden so much as he was fact checking the Indianapolis Star. And, and by the way, he pointed to the pretty aggressive use he, he, found four headlines where this story had gone international and all of that stuff. So the the coda to this is the Columbus Dispatch. Well, look, in my view, they all went with this story before they knew it was true. Mm-hmm. They all went with this story on the doctor's say-so, including the White House, before like doing the real journalistic legwork of corroborating it. Right. And... In this case, it did turn out to be true, but, like, the journalistic, like, real checking of the facts and the, like, shoe leather reporting was not done in this case. And so I do think, like, the raised eyebrows were were fair. Well, wait, 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 wait. Kessler, I said, had a raised eyebrow. Yeah. Jesse Waters did not Uh, have a raised eyebrow. So, those are two different things. The people who were like, this is false, also without like doing the journalistic shoe leather reporting, this, that, and the other, it is very hard to prove a negative. And so that is dangerous. Uh, And like the Beacon didn't do it, despite, you know, people internally being like, huh, what about this? Like, it does seem weird. This does seem kind of far-fetched. You know, we, we, our conversations certainly were like, it could be true. Like, this is hard. It's hard to prove something did not happen. Well, let, let me say a word about this and about abortion coverage in general. Here's a here's the problem. Very few Americans today who are politically engaged are willing to believe that the people with whom they disagree are sincere, right? The common belief is, among, and let's staying with abortion, among pro-choice people is that the pro-lifers aren't sincerely pro-life. They're anti-woman or they're whatever. And among pro-lifers, 
the belief is that the pro-choice people aren't really concerned about forced births or whatever else, but that they're libertines or in it for political reasons or whatever else. If we started with the premise that the people with whom we disagree sincerely hold those beliefs, we would be less quick to jump to conclusions about stories like this. And the abortion debate provides a perfect way for Americans to think differently about how they consume news and about how journalists produce news, which is start with the possibility, just the possibility, that people mean what they say. There's actually a corollary to this in our next, a connection to this in our next story that I think is interesting that we will discuss, but should we, should we move to that? Or well, do the we politifa- well I, want, I do want to touch this PolitiFact fact check, speaking of fact checks that stink, is the PolitiFact. So focus on the, do you know what focus on the family is? Yes. Okay, so it was James Dobson and his wife, they, their ministry, Colorado, became very powerful through radio, and I suppose continues to be powerful. I don't, I, I don't know anymore. But PolitiFact from the Pointer Institute chose Focus on the Family, which was running ads that said abortion is available at any point of pregnancy and for any reason in Alaska, Colorado, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, and Vermont. And they came back with a mostly false on this. First question, PolitiFact, what do you care? The, the focus on the family is a is a political group and not a media outlet, but whatever. So they come back with mostly false. And the way that they come back with mostly false is to say, well, yes, now that the law has changed, it's true that abortion is unrestricted in those states that are listed. But here are here are their quibbles. Under the laws in those six states, abortion is not specifically prohibited in any stage of pregnancy. But Late-term abortions are rare. However, nationally, less than 1% of abortions, blah, 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 blah. Experts say that late-term abortions are not elective and are done only for medical reasons. So the here was a statement that folks on the family made that was true and correct. And then PolitiFact comes in with a bajillion-sentence piece. And by the way, the use of the phrase, our ruling, <laughs> is so preposterous. Our ruling says, you know, some interns working in Tampa, but that is mostly false is there. Mo- I, I, my rule, the, the, may I speak for the podcast briefly to say this, the ink stained wretches ruling is that your ruling of mostly false is mostly false. Will you, will you concur in the decision? I, I concur. You concur in the decision. Okay. So we need the motion a, I carries. Want, we need an Inkstein Wretch's gavel. Exactly. But I really want that. We should We should sell those. Boing. boing, 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 boing when boing, we get boing. the advertising <laughs> revenue from Tan Drops and Hawaiian Tropic Oil, we will buy gavels to sell. We're out here, Hawaiian Tropic. Yes. You, send me a case and I'll look like, what was his name? Connor, the the captain of the Old America's Cup boat race, who looked like Brown. He, had t- he was just... Just a fat, really tan white guy, and I've always thought like that's my summer objective. That's my summer look is to look is to want to be like Dennis Connor. Up All right. next, we got the oh boy, Austin American statesman releasing the video of the suspect this entering the elementary school in Uvalde, and you can hear the gunshots. They've edited out the sound of the children. Screaming, but it was a controversial decision for them to release this video after obtaining it. And I just thought it was 
really well done. So they posted a piece that describes, and we'll link the piece, but they, they posted a piece that describes what's in the video where you can see like lots and lots of officers in the hallway. Oh. Uh, on the journalism aspect of it, I thought, so um, there was some blowback against their decision to publish it because um, there were families saying they were very yeah. upset by the decision to publish. But I thought um, in the, the article it, itself was really well done. And then the Austin American Statesman published a separate piece describing why they made the decision yeah. they did to publish it that I thought was really excellent. And I just wanted to read a little bit of it. The editor, and I wanted to pull up his name. So the editor, Manny Garcia, wrote, the video that we obtained is one hour and 22 minutes long. It's tragic to listen to and watch. Our decision to publish, along with our news partner, KVUE, comes after long and thoughtful discussions. They say they're publishing two versions of the video. So the editor says, we know now, thanks to the many news organizations that continue to dig for the facts, that some students quietly called 911 from inside the classrooms for help. A critically wounded teacher could hear officers just outside the classroom and that 911 dispatchers were fielding their calls of desperation. We also know that exasperated parents, family members, and bystanders standing outside the school begged authorities to do something. After 77 minutes, the video shows the officers breached the classroom. There is gunfire, and we know that the gunman was shot dead. And then the video shortly ends. What we do not see is the officers when they see or realize the death toll inside the classrooms. We have to bear witness to history and transparency Transparency with unrelenting reporting is a way to bring change. And then they conclude, that is the reason we publish alongside KVUE. This, this story is part of a much larger public records and legal battle from our journalists aligned with reporters in Uvalde around Texas and the United States to obtain all videos of the tra- tragedy, body camera footage, communications, 911 calls, and more. Thank you for your time and support. And I just thought it was really, really well done, and it gave like a great insight into some of the conversations. They had the editor notes that they debated whether to blur out the gunman's face, and they decided not to. And... It's really, really interesting. I think people should read it, and it sheds a light. Like, obviously, this is a much more serious piece, but it sheds a light on the types of discussions, editorial discussions that happen in newspapers all the time. I think it's, I, th- I think given the amount of effort that the police department and the city put into preventing this from being released, merited the tough pushback from journalists because the public sh- should have a right to know. And then once you fought that fight— you sort of have to release it, right? I think I think you once you've done that, you've got to say, and this is why we did. So kudos to them. Uh, one thought on mass shootings I just wanted to share. I was reminded listening to Charles Cook of National Review talking with my friend and colleague Jonah Goldberg on Jonah's podcast. I have had a rule, uh, and it was a rule actually I shared with Megan Kelly when we both worked at Fox, which was, don't name the shooters, right? Don't say their names. Don't read their manifestos. Don't do it, right? Because it, mass murder is imitative, and the publicity aspect of this that you have, we have a tragically huge number of suicides in the United States. The difference between a suicidal person and a mass shooter who is suicidal is got to be, I'm going to be in the history books. I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be important. In the struggle to have political point scored in mass murders, right? The quest to figure out whose fault, who, who, from whose team is this person? Is this guy a left guy, a right guy? So the, the mass murderer at the 4th of July parade in Illinois, 
for example, people were reading, reporters were talking about his manifesto. They were talking about what he was like. I don't care what's in his manifesto. I don't care what he is like. I know everything I need to know about him is that he is a mass murderer. And I know there's fascination with mass murderers, Charles Manson, and it's fascinating to talk about it. But boy, I think as journalists, we should be very circumspect about naming these. Like, I'm not saying they should never be named, but once it's named and the person's been identified, let's move on, right? I'd much rather spend time talking about the victims than I would talking about the person. And a lot of the reason that the person is being, the killer is talked about so much is an effort beyond just the fascination with fascinating things, but with the desire to assign political blame to one side or the other. So cut that out. My corollary to the one above about like trying to see the various sides of a situation was that the Beacon has an interesting piece this morning. We're recording on Thursday about the legal precedents kind of hanging over these of the police when they have to make these split second decisions confronting mass shooters and that um, it's about qualified immunity and the police who have actually been brought up on charges in these kinds of situations and that we're never going to know what was going through these cops heads but it's not crazy to think that like these legal decisions are in the back of their minds or have some sort of an impact and it's worth a read particularly like when we see this horrifying video and you're like these cops are complete pieces of crap to like Think about this stuff's hard and complicated. In their in their case, though, people on the scene, the parents on the scene, it's like totally. Yeah, the, in this one, it's it's clear cut to me. It's clear cut, but yes, certainly as a problem. You know, I've talked about this as it relates to critical race theory and the, the battle over school curriculum. What would a reasonable person who was a teacher in an American school, especially in a politically politically explosive kind of county or school district, what would you discern, Eliana Johnson, the right thing to do about teaching American history and racism? If you were, if you were a teacher, what would you, what would you, what, what might you make a reasonable choice to do? Not teach it, right? Stay away from it. Only bad things can happen. So in this debate over what is going to be taught, you end up with teachers that will, I'm sure, conclude you know, that section that we were going to do on the Civil War and Reconstruction, let's maybe move on from that. Let's skip that and talk about something else. And the fight over what to teach will result in less being taught. And I think that's analogous to what you're describing with the police departments. The If you're a police officer, reasonable conclusion is don't step in. Don't put your life on the line. Don't go engage in this because you may be wrong, right? And if you're wrong, the consequences for you ruins for, your life. ruins your life forever. So- let it play out. And we want police officers to be peace officers who keep the peace. We don't want people who just arrest folks after everything is over. We want people to prevent violence. We want people to prevent crimes, not just arrest criminals. The, and uh, we need peace officers more than we need just police. Up next, we got Twitter and Elon oh. Musk backing out of the deal. I, I, I only... The part of it that is journalistically interesting to me is I don't know how long ago our episode, I Love Your Musk, came out. But in that episode, we talked about how insanely too much coverage this story got because of journalists' obsession with being on Twitter. That because journalists live on Twitter, 
Elon Musk doing something relating to Twitter got all this incredible amount of coverage. And what I find so funny now is that we get to the end, and there were, uh, by the way, and I, I, I don't have the names in front of me, but I should credit them, but there were business reporters who were like, yeah, this isn't going to happen, folks. This is probably not going to happen. This is a thing that Elon Musk does. And he's going to lose interest or it's going to get difficult and it's not going to happen. But the political press and the Washington press corps and all of that stuff covered this story like just bonkers over and over again. And then at the end, it's like, JK, LOL, never mind. Actually, I'm not buying Twitter and blah, 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 blah. And just I would say to news consumers, when you see a story that seems like it's about nothing, it probably is, and you should probably feel free to skip over articles about Twitter or stuff like this. If it doesn't seem relevant to your life, give yourself permission to ignore. Well, the thing I thought was so interesting about the story, actually, and by the way, I thought that Elon was going to go through with this and buy Twitter, and he may be forced to. We don't know. But my husband was like, no way. He's not going to do this. And I was like, well, what do you know? I mean, he's going to do it, and I know more than you and whatever. But, like, he was <laughs> totally right. a typical right. night. Yeah, yes. yeah. He was totally <laughs> right. And I told him, like, you were completely right. But what I think is so interesting is that he, like – Okay, so he wasn't serious about buying it, but he was serious, apparently, about inflicting a lot of damage on them. And he's, like, totally bloodied and embarrassed them. So what he's done is not, it's not like he was unserious. He was just serious about doing something different, which was really damaging Twitter. Do you think, I think that was his plan? I, I'm not sure, but this paragraph from the New York Times story that will link really jumped out at me in the headline of the Times story is how Elon Musk damaged Twitter and left it worse off. And I thought it was, I just didn't, I don't know about a lot of this stuff. So I found it super interesting, but it's the paragraph that jumped out at me was of all the wreckage, Mr. Musk is leaving at Twitter. The most prominent may be how brutally he exposed the company's waning financial and business prospects. Twitter has operated at a loss for seven of the nine years. It has been a public company, during deliberations over Mr. Musk's offer, the company received no serious interest from other suitors. People with knowledge of the situation have said Twitter's board determined that Mr. Musk's offer of fifty-four twenty a share was the best it could obtain, suggesting suggesting it saw no way to reach that price on its own. Uh, I thought that was very interesting, and it's hard to know. Like, was was this the strategy from the outset what is he really upset by their disclosure their failure to disclose or by their like the, the number of bots on the site i have no idea but i found it interesting that he is like damaged them so much at least according to the new york times i, th I think that what twitter is to me when people talk about big tech and they include twitter and big tech i'm like not big <laughs> definitely not big microsoft big tech twitter small loses money, relatively few people use, not big tech. And I think what is being exposed through all of this is how unessential Twitter is and how people who talk about Twitter as the town square or whatever else are full of beans and that Twitter was a fad. So there. So turns out there's a John Stewart for president constituency that we're getting hot and heavy in the in the media. Hot. We were very amped about this when we sat down to record. Hot and heavy is strong. Writing for Politico magazine, which is Politico magazine different from Politico? I don't understand. It is. Like, internally it is. But Juliana Glover, who a Republican media person. Uh, that's like saying Steve Schmidt's a Republican. Well, I, she worked for Republicans. <laughs> yes. Okay. 
she Steve, ma- Steve they, she, they once did. She made her career, as, the, as her bio points out, working for Dick Cheney, Rudy Giuliani, Steve Forbes, and John Ashcroft. She starts out that she thinks that, well, I'll just read her lead. Joe Biden should run for president in 2024, but if he decides against it for whatever reason and the Democrats want a serious shot at retaining the White House, John Stewart should run on the Democratic ticket instead. Yes, that's right, John Stewart, the TV personality, podcaster, comedian, the five foot seven inch, former host of The Daily Show, and goes on to say why this is right because of celebrity obsession and politics and blah, 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 and goes on and on and on about this. And the idea is basically, of the premise this way would be, if the Republicans are going to nominate Tucker Carlson, which I think is a non-zero, I think that's a non-zero possibility. I totally agree. It's not crazy. It's not it's not a non-zero possibility. The, or, or it is a non-zero. It is. Sorry. Yes. If Tucker here's Oh, my the, gosh. That's, like, really crazy to think about. <laughs> it, uh, double negatives. Yeah. If Tucker runs in 2024, here's who the Democrats need, is the headline on the piece. And first of all, no. I No, absolutely. If the Republicans nominate a TV host to be, again, if the Republicans, if the Republicans for the third time nominate a TV personality- for their candidate, then the Democrats should nominate a sober-sided, serious politician and statesman or stateswoman who can expose Tucker Carlson as an unserious choice. You would not then say, this is like when Michael Moore, I, I forget who all, but the dumb ideas that Democrats had for who should run against Trump, and it would be like, somebody who can put him in his place, another insult comic, or da da and you're like, or just shut up, do your job, and pick somebody qualified and and hopefully voters will like them on a related note the ben smith justin smith news outlet semaphore Semaphore. had a launch event and as a part of this launch event i will always just think of it as what taxi cab what's i was calling a taxi (laughs) because they said that the title was going to be a name that is the word is the same in many languages so what does semaphore even mean? Should I no, that's that using up? flags to communicate. Semaphore. You, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a, a bi- um, it's it is what a, does it mean? it's a semiotics. It's it is communicate using flags to communicate to send messages like ships do, so that you can see you know the naval you know the uh, it means flags right? right using flags to communicate. Okay. So like a, a good example would be there's the naval flag alphabet that all the guys who go to the have boats wear for their belts and that you can send specific messages using flags. Okay. So, as a part of their launch event, Ben Smith interviewed Tucker Carlson, and they are old friends, but let's play some clips from this interview. So I'm just hoping you'll you'll let me ask questions and not steamroll me cuz you're you're a professional and I'm not Do you have any empathy? Do you have any empathy for somebody who sees that clip? Somebody who's, you know, whose parents are from India, from China, who are Jewish, and say, "Wow, I don't think I like I listen. I just see that clip, and I don't really think this guy includes me in his vision of America." Slow down. Okay. No, I I don't have any, as you said, empathy for people. Do you understand why they might think that? Please let me, if, if you don't mind, if I could finish. And Ben caught a lot of flack <laughs> for doing that interview, but and the flat and uh, the flack was, was kind what? of yikes. The, the the flack was both before and after. It was why are you giving this person a platform? 
why are you elevating this person? Blah, blah, blah. And then the after was Ben Smith gets steamrolled by Tucker Carlson. And he did. And he did. That was, like, kind of painful to watch, I have to say. It, it was made worse me- by, I should I should just say in advance, I, didn't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but we should you say may. in advance, doing this remotely is hard. I can tell you as a person who's had to conduct interviews and be interviewed remotely, it's challenging that little delay, and there's clearly a little delay there, does make it very challenging. So that was also working to Smith's disadvantage. Well, it made me wonder, and I feel like kind of, is Tucker uninterviewable? I just felt like if I were in Ben's position, I would have been completely freaking steamrolled. I would have been like, just, just, just kill me. Like, just run me over with the semi truck. Like, I, you know, he's just too like verbally adept. Well, also for he, me. Well, also for Ben, obviously for. And and also he is shameless, right? That's that's why Tucker Carlson is uninterviewable. Because he doesn't care what you ask, and he laughs at you, and he just rolls right. It's the it, the reason that interviews work is because the participants when it's like a genuine, right, sincere the, exchange of the the, the participants views. mean to communicate ideas to one another. This was not an interview. This was I, here's I, and I don't know what it was, but what it looked like was Ben Smith a- asked a favor of someone. A, a source, a friend, or whatever, to do this to add a frisson of danger and interest and attention to the launch of his business, and that Carlson did it for whatever reason, and then came in and and gnawed him up and spat him back out, and Ben Smith was at a huge disadvantage the whole time. But I guess it did get publicity in that way. But I just, I guess, I would just say, you know, why would you enter? Tucker Carlson is. A a a a one bloviating cable news host who knows how to do it. He's been honing it. Well, he's been honing it for thirty years, right? This is this is his milieu. This is what he does. And if he he's not going to have, it would not be possible for Tucker to have a sincere conversation with Ben Smith in that setting, given Tucker's professional motivations in this situation. So I just think it was a you know it was just a mess. Up next, Chris, after four years of free-for-all interviews with the president who would talk to anybody, the White House press corps has some complaints about President Joe Biden. Tell us about them. Well, you know, this this is of a piece with what we were talking about last week, where the mob, the press mob attacking Biden, and one of my bugaboos is the imaginary power of the presidency. So... If only the president would speak out, and we were laughing about how the, I forget whose reporting was like, Biden, you know, failed to show anger, while J.B. Pritzker, he was right, so right. angry. Oh, yeah. thank God, J.B. Pritzker was so ineffectually but performatively angry. And Gavin Newsom. Yes. Said, well, get, where's my party? And then there were no more shootings. And then people, and then Republicans yeah. were like, boy, we didn't know they were really mad. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, in that case, I guess gun control. But here is the Columbia Journalism Review writing about, here's the headline, The Biden Administration's Weasel Words on Press Freedom by John Alsop. And he says, and I think he's talking about Tuesday, President Biden and his Mexican counterpart, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, Manlo, 
spoke in front of reporters in the Oval Office, or more accurately, Lopez Obrador spoke, going on for 31 minutes about everything from migration to gas prices to lithium nationalization. Biden struggled to get a word in edgewise. Lopez Obrador did find did not find time to mention another major crisis facing his country, the 12 reporters who have been killed there already this year. Now, I get it. I understand. Manlo is no friend of the press. He is a, a he is a author, he has an authoritarian bent. He's got a nationalist and he doesn't have good vibes about the press. But that that construct that it would be like, while I'm here, let me speak of this embarrassing, horrible thing that's going on in my country just to bring it up. While I'm here <laughs> in Washington, let me, you know what you know what else he didn't bring up? He didn't bring up infant mortality rates in Mexico. He didn't he didn't bring up a lot of things that Mexicans are not proud of or shouldn't be proud of. So all of this. But here's then. OK, but Biden, when he did. I t- scare Itals did speak, didn't publicly push on it. He did find time to criticize, quote, overhyped headlines about his relationship with Lopez Obrador and to praise a, quote, scare quote, lovely lady journalist from Mexico for holding a camera study as Lo- <laughs> Lopez Obrador rattled on. Now, look, I hear you. It's bad. I It's what's happening to journalists around the world, and you and I have talked about this often in the context of how soft the hands of American journalists are, that what we consider to be attacks on press freedom in most of the world, people are like, wow, you have that much freedom? And I'm not saying we shouldn't have, we shouldn't go for maximal and all of that stuff. But this kind of attack on Biden, as if, what, as if Biden, by embarrassing our most significant, well, our second most significant trading partner, neighbor to the South, that we're having to work on a deal with about the remain in Mexico policy, that we have a chaotic border situation, that we have all of this, that Joe Biden in front of reporters should have said, well, Manlo, that's all interesting what you say, but what about the dead reporters? What about the dead reporters? And he didn't. And there are just, you know, and this is of a piece with what we'll see as Biden with the Saudis and his trip, by the way, maybe ESPN can cover the Live Golf League even more now because Biden is in the Middle East. But all of this stuff, yes, American presidents have a duty to stand up for American ideals, period. Yes, that is absolutely true. And failures to do so are 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 shameful. However, don't pretend like the American president has the power to end the murder of journalists. Don't pretend like the American has American president has the power to do things that he does not and then judge him for failing to do those things. Imaginary powers, real criticism. What do we got next? Oh, nudes. Send nudes with goats. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> this is This is a great headline. On, I hope all our listeners remember former rep Katie Hill. Yes. The cute California, was she California? Yes, DCA. This is the headline. A judge ruled that my naked body was in the public interest, colon. Former rep Katie Hill, bankrupt after revenge porn suit. So Katie Hill, congresswoman from California, had flipped a a Republican district in 2018. Her... Estranged husband. This is where America learned, if you'll recall, and I apologize now to children about a relationship of called a thruple, 
of three individuals <laughs> instead of a couple. For those who aren't familiar, Chris is going to define thruple. For no, you. I've gone. That's about as far as we're going to go on that one. But at any rate, Katie Hill and her husband apparently had a very open-minded physical relationship. Non-traditional. And very non-traditional. There were, there were some great pictures that emerged where she was like naked brushing another lady's hair. hair smoking, Juana. There was goats. There were goats in one. The one for some reason. Oh, the that, goats ones. I forgot. For about some reason, that. that's what stayed with me. I don't know what that says about my upbringing or what's going on in my head. But the one that I can never get out of my my mind's eye is that it's like sexy time. But there's a couple of goats, like they're on a, a farm or something, and there's a couple of goats behind there. And I'm like, what's going down with the goats? What is the situation, people? California. This, you know, what they say about West Virginia. Anyway, the her husband. The way that her career ended or her uh, the, the way her tenure in Congress ended was that her husband in their obviously Thruple. horrible divorce, horrible whatever, gave these photos. Correct me where I'm wrong on this. I'm not sure if we know who the source is. Do we know the husband was the source of the photos? It seemed likely that the, I think it's likely, but, it, but. I, don't, I don't and I don't I don't want to say I don't want to accuse him of things that he didn't do. But the her However, and she sued the Daily Mail of London, right? Who else did she sue? I forget who all, but the Daily Call, I forget who all was on the list. But anyway, got these nude. What a stupid, stupid lawsuit. So she sued them. Now, a ju- what did a judge rule? The judge ruled, sorry, and it's well known, if you obtain something that is like Ill- if you sorry i'm like butchering this but if you obtain something like by fair means as a reporter right. that the other person obtained illegally right. it is totally legal to publish That's sorry right. katie hill if you were and so she had to pay attorney's fees totaling $220,000 and the there's been a uh, a lot of enthusiasm lately for using libel law and doing all of this stuff sometimes though people file these lawsuits to make themselves look better and feel better, that there is a position like, I'm so mad about this, I'm suing. That's what I'm doing. Well, the lesson here is that that can have consequences. And the consequences can be that when you know- Or that you're bankrupt. Well, and and she has declared bankruptcy. Much like Michael Scott from The Office, (laughs) she has declared bankruptcy by announcing it on Twitter. But- I shouldn't. I mean, I'm sure her life is miserable, and I, I feel I feel terrible for her. But she knew that you can't sue out. I think what the Daily Mail did in publishing those, uh, I think I wouldn't have done, right? I don't think I would have. It, it, let's say it was the – let's take a different case. Let's say the estranged spouse of a member of Congress had personal private pictures from their marriage that were embarrassing and out of context – and selected by this person and said, hey, do you want these? I would say, no, I do not want these. You take the, so I- I, I, I would dis- say, heck yes, I want those. <laughs> I would say no. And the Washington Free Beacon's very interested. You're, send send nudes. Yes, this is this please. Washington Beacon. You need a, yes. you need a send nudes click box yes. on the website. But I would not, I would not take them. Oh, oh yes, I would absolutely would. And then we can have the discussion about whether to publish after we are in receipt <laughs> of the nudes. Said nudes. Yes. But the you can't sue the people for publishing what they got because that's the, the free expression. That's 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 the, these this is the price of poker and all of that stuff. So no, I, I think hopefully 
this is will be part of a trend to, where there is instead of less recognition of press freedom in this, but more recognition of press freedom and less silly lawsuits, fewer silly I lawsuits. I doubt it. Probably, there but there will always be crazy people. Well, thank God, or we'd crazy, have nothing to cover. Dumb people. This act. This is a story actually. I just clicked on this morning, and I have not yet had the time to read. So please inform us about like the happenings with Uber. Oh, save your time. Let me oh, tell really? you. Okay. You are the you are the lucky one. You are the lucky one. Okay, so I keep getting all these alerts from the Washington Post. Oh my gosh, Uber documents, Uber, do, Uber documents. I'm like, what is going on? Did they find out that Uber is like, you know, running a cocaine monkey experiment? Like what what is going on at Uber? And the answer is, and here's and here's my just this is a phenomenon that people should remember. Your audience, journalists, does not know and does not care how hard it was for you to get what you got, and they don't care whether you have a lot of it. They just care whether it's interesting and important. So they got all of these documents from Uber, the leak document, and they're referring to it as the Uber Files Trove. So the Guardian originally got them, right? I have... 124,000 documents the Guardian got, known as the Uber Files, lays bare the ethically questionable practices that fueled the company's transformation into one of Silicon Valley's most famous exports. So here's a three-byline piece in the Washington Post, which is, and it's under the special heading, the Uber Files, a global investigation. Oh my gosh. Which is already your warning. This is like their answer to the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files. It's It's your warning- as a consumer, that this is not worth your time. And when the, the, the when they have a special heading for that they're telling you this is very important, Dave Barry's old joke where awards journalism should come with a disclaimer to say that it's awards journalism and, not, and should not be read uh, by civilians and only award judges. When you have a special section header like this, this is your cue, readers, to skip. But then the headline also tells you to skip here. Uber leveraged violent attacks against its drivers to pressure politicians. So you have, as you say, a hundred and whatever thousand pages of documents and they have all of this stuff. So what's your lead? What's your stinger? What's your like, we've got it. We went through all of this and we can tell you the truth now. Okay, well, what's the truth? Yeah, well, when their drivers would be beaten and attacked in places, they would try to get try to gain political advantage for their drivers and their and their service by exploiting the beatings of their own drivers. I'm like, what did you think they would do? If you have taxi drivers physically assaulting Uber drivers, should they ignore it? Should they not talk about it? What do you think Uber's job was? What do you think Uber was trying to do? Uber was fighting entrenched. Do you remember how hard it was for Uber to get into New York? Do you remember how long they fought in Austin? Do you remember in how many cities where the cartel of taxi drivers made it impossible for them to do business? Do you remember how long, Eliana, did you, did you go to, I don't know how it is in Austin now, but they kept Uber out of Austin, Texas for until like five years ago or something. And it is, if you have done, it's very, it would be very hard to say that you need time, say to your editors, I need time to do all of this investigation. But I would say this, when you come back with a nothing burger like this, which is that Uber sought positive, sought to gain advantage from the beatings of their own drivers. If if that's what you've got, then the editor should have engaged in a mercy. Now, maybe there's a better story that could be told, pulled out of this somewhere. But if the conclusion is this is the best thing that we've got, 
this this story should have taken been taken out behind the building and shot and 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 everybody should have chalked it up to experience that's a awkward transition to our final item oh. on like page a24 well I do before we do that I do want to say one good thing about the Washington Post oh oh in my long-running effort to to say good things about the Washington Post David Shipley is the new is going to be the new Washington Post editor. Started. Is it, has he already started? David Shipley, who was the longtime editor at Bloomberg, who was there for a long time. And, and Bloomberg has a great opinion section, variety of viewpoints, well-edited, interesting, and all of that stuff. I think David Shipley is a great successor to Fred Hyatt. I think that the Washington Post has a varied, and they have libertarian conservatives and conservative conservatives and nationalist conservatives and they have progressives and populists and liberal liberals. I think the Washington Post broad opinion section, broad viewpoint inclusion is 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 good and should be maintained. So kudos on the David Shipley hire. That's a good one. I'm reserving judgment. You did you, do you think the Bloomberg was good you I I tend to think and maybe this is a this is a un, unknown bias that I have. I tend to think Bloomberg uh, opinion's pretty good. Eh. Meh. Reserving <laughs> judgment on this. Okay. Well, we wish you the best. I wish you the best, David Shipley. Dr. Jill Biden oh, came this in thing. for a flogging. Oh, this thing. Oh, my gosh. This week. Apparently, she had not yet read Andrew Stiles' Guide to Racial Diversity at the Free Beacon, but she... What did she do? What did she do? Well, she did not have to do anything. What did she do? She she went to the city of Austin. I thought San Antonio. You're right. You're right. Sorry. Uh, I had Austin in my mind from what you were saying. She went to San Antonio and praised the, you know what? No good deed goes unpunished. She praised the Hispanic community in um, San Antonio as being as unique as like the multiplicity of breakfast tacos on offer in the city. And then there was like this massive blowback that people said she compared them to breakfast tacos, which is like, no, she didn't. She, she said that. Let's play the clip. Okay. Let's Let's hear, let's hear what she had to say about bodegas and breakfast tacos. But we can't get those things on our own. Raul helped build this organization with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, <laughs> is your strength. Okay, so it's corny, not flour, <laughs> but, but it's corny, but... How would that be racist? And how would, to, if you were to say, so she's, she's saying the Latino, or I'm sorry, as, as, the, as the organizers of this Latinx. event would say, Latinx, that the Latino and Latina Americans are a diverse and they're adding so much to our culture. And I would, I would think that if you were talking about, let's say, the German, if you're talking about German Americans, you might include beer from Milwaukee and St. Louis, you might include bratwurst and that would be okay, right? It wouldn't be, or if you were talking about poles, it would be okay to talk about- Can't the, compare them to sausages, Chris. Ex- exactly. And so it's dumb. But what struck me from a media angle, the amount of coverage, I read about this in the Los Angeles Times. I read about it on the Associated Press. 
I read about it everywhere. It was such a freak out. Because it was absurd that she, like, beclowned herself by apologizing like a, a Well, dummy. after reporters made her. Well, she, they didn't make her. She didn't have to do it, and she well, shouldn't have done it. all these groups were saying how aggrieved and offended they were by her non-offense. Yes. And so it was kind of amazing, and news. I found it interesting and newsworthy because it's like a phenomenon of our era, you know? But the phenomenon is a, is a self-made one. This is a self-licking ice cream cone. This is one of those stories where the reporters themselves asking about it is making it the story, right? What do you say? And, of course, if we were doing this on the basis of how many Americans knew about it, how many Americans cared about what she said, and it wasn't it wasn't even a gaffe, right? Now, if you were, if, if I, I don't want, I don't know who all denounced her, but it wasn't like this was a majority opinion. These are the same people who use the word Latinx, even though the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of Hispanic Americans say again and again and again, we don't use that term. We don't like that term. Latinx is not what we want to do. So these are weirdos to begin with. So to have mainstream outlets led around by the nose on this subject so they can go and demand, essentially demand an apology from Jill Biden, who was trying to say something nice, is a fake story, fake outrage. she was stupid enough to give it. Yeah, of course. Well, what are you going to, I mean, if you're a Democrat in America, can you imagine if Jill Biden had said, Nah, eh, I'm good with it. I lo- I like breakfast tacos. And by the way, breakfast tacos are, are very good. And the breakfast tacos in that part of Texas are phenomenal. I want to speak out here on behalf of the of the community of Wimberley, Texas, and the breakfast tacos that you can get from the truck in the parking lot of the High V. And I'm here to tell you, this is to be enjoyed sincerely. And I embrace the diversity of a Latin a Latino community in the United States that can produce these breakfast tacos. So I stand on behalf of breakfast tacos. What do you what do you have in your breakfast taco? I was actually just thinking that that sounds really good. I think I would like scrambled eggs, chorizo, cheese, some kind of salsa. Mm-hmm. I like I'm really like sauces. Let me tell some crema. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Here's what you want in your breakfast taco. Please, please mansplain breakfast tacos. I will. This is fat splaining. This is. <laughs> this is. I am uh, so here to be fat splained too. This is. This is. Let, let let a glutton explain to you. So what you want is a flour tortilla, and then what you want are potatoes. You want? No, them, I'm not. A, I actually not a potato fan. You want them crispy. Uh, oh, okay. You want crispy cubed, home home fries, but very crispy home fries. Yeah. Not in large number. Now. Chorizo, I hear you, and you're not wrong about chorizo for a breakfast taco, but I'm going to tell you that it's actually bacon. It's actually a strip of bacon, and then it's not a scrambled egg. It is a perfectly cooked sunny side egg or a quickly over easy egg because if you like sauce, my friend, what's going to happen here? And then, of course, some cheese over the top, just some jack cheese. Cojita, if you want to be fancy, whatever you want to do. Or some, you want it to really get nuts. What you can do is you could take the Oaxacan cheese and melt it to the tortilla, but that's like whatever. What the sauce that you're going to get here is that when you put the hot sauce, right, or the salsa on there, and then you bite in, what's going to happen with that egg yolk? You're going to get this amazing, yolky, spicy, wonderful thing that's going to happen. It's going to blow your mind. Can we do a live taste test next week? 
I, carbs. I can't. Ha- I'm. I'm. But I'm. I'll do the live. Oh, okay, and test. see what you like. Yes, okay. Yes. Well, so hopefully, you bring it. Well, maybe Abby. Maybe intern Abby verdict. Black. Maybe intern. Oh my god! Abby and Black. I can see Colin eat for the first time. Do you think Colin Col- doesn't eat? Well, I. Do you think he takes his nutrients by in a paste? I've just never seen it. You think so that he can maximize his Subaru driving and hiking? He just is, <laughs> yes. He's having everything in a gruel. <laughs> yeah. Nutri- a nutrient dense broth. Like in a bag of gore. <laughs> you, you, you Everything remi- is dried. You remind me of Jim Jim Gaffigan's joke. He says apparently donuts are not an appropriate ingredient for trail mix. He said, but I'm just on a very different kind of trail. Very, <laughs> it's one that leads to the emergency room. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Chris. Yes. It is. Time for our Obsessions of the Week. And these are the stories that we can't get out of our heads. This is where I take you by the hand and lead you by example. And mine this week was actually a Daily Caller story about January 6th committee witness Cassidy Hutchinson that I thought was very interesting, and I it I will get to the story, but given the story, it surprised me that we haven't gotten more mainstream reporting about kind of her path to becoming the star witness mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. about who exactly she is because she does, to this point, seem to be the star witness of that committee. And the Daily Caller story is headlined, Exclusive Cassidy Hutchinson begged senior Trump officials for financial assistance after being subpoenaed by J6 committee. The headline makes it seem kind of like it's a hit piece on her, but when you read the piece, I don't really think it is, and we will link it. It is about how when she left the Trump administration, she did not have a job. She's obviously only 25. Right. And she was writing her former colleagues and asking for help finding a lawyer, paying for a lawyer, lawyer, getting counsel after she left the White House and was subpoenaed and saying that her aunt and uncle were trying to take out like a second mortgage on their home to help her pay and were not able to do that. And it was really interesting background that would give you a deeper understanding of how she ended up turning on these people because let me read the following paragraph. Multiple senior Trump officials and a person with firsthand knowledge told the Daily Caller that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows would not answer Hutchinson's calls after she was subpoenaed. Now, she was like his right hand. Mm-hmm. A Meadows spokesperson confirmed those claims to the Daily Caller, saying Meadows didn't return those calls to avoid the appearance of improperly influencing any testimony. Um, and then here's a quote from a former Trump aide. Cassidy Hutchinson reached out to various people in Trump world asking for both financial assistance and help finding a lawyer. She told us she was in significant financial distress. The person with firsthand knowledge also said that Trump officials were sympathetic because of her age and lack of employment. This is the next quote. She reached out to Trump world and was like, hey, she didn't have a job. She didn't have money to pay for a lawyer. Meadows wasn't returning her phone calls and her circle of people weren't being helpful. A former senior Trump official told the caller. So you can imagine the position that a 25-year-old was in and how she may have ended up perhaps souring on her former colleagues given this situation. Mark Mark Meadows, though, to be fair, could not have contacted her. Nonetheless, you one could imagine. I, so you read the it's an email thread here, and this is former Fox News intern Henry Rogers writing at the Daily Caller, and he somebody gave him this email thread 
between Hutchison, Hutchinson and a person who gave them to obviously or seemingly obviously because their own they their own the other person's name is blocked out. So this person shared these emails and she basically says, I don't know what to do. I've been subpoenaed. Yeah. Trey Gowdy told me that I should and she talked to she mentions John Ratcliffe and Trey Gowdy, current and former congressman. She reached out to them. What should I do? And they said, here's some lawyers that you can get. Basically, she's saying, I don't have any way to retain these very expensive lawyers. And what what should I do? She's asking for advice, basically, or help. Tell me. And she says specifically, is there a fund or something that has been set up to pay for legal defense for people like this? And do you know the funny thing, Cassidy Hutchison? There was. And you know what? Donald Trump ate it. He ate that money that the Republican National Committee has set aside for his legal defense. And just like everything else, he ate it. And it's gone because it's his. And this, the failure to provide legal representation, to have a way that the administration, that former administration members could obtain legal representation for their work while they're in the administration is preposterous, that there was not something in place. And this just tells you, as as we have seen throughout the January 6th hearings, and now with, what's his name, Cipollone, the former White House counsel, as we've seen with the uh, on and on again, where it, no one, no one is running anything. No one is in charge of anything. No one is accountable. It was just everybody for themselves. What is your obsession, Chris? Oh, my gosh. It's a controversial obsession. The, nothing divides Washington, in my experience, journalistic Washington, more than Mark Leibovich. Where are you on Mark Leibovich? I like him. I think he is one of the great, great writers, journalistic writers of our time. I, like, adore his writing. And his book, This Town, is still, I st- it's just, the writing is, he is just a great writer. And he has such a good ear for Washington. So his new book is out, and it is called <laughs> Thank You for Your Servitude. And it is a, it is a to me, and I've just read the excerpt so far, but a really useful, one of the first really, really useful looks into, as Leibovich said, and I forget where I heard him interviewed, and I apologize for forgetting, but as Leibovich points out, the story isn't Donald Trump, right? The story of the Trump years isn't Donald Trump. It's what happened in Washington around Donald Trump and because of Donald Trump, and it's on the left, and it's on the right, and it's these people. And one of the things that I think a lot of the coverage got wrong was treating Trump as sui generis, that there is, that there, there's no, never has anyone been like this before, never will anyone be like this again. I think Leibovich grabs the right thing, which is he was just a, a, a more vulgar version of something very, very normal in Washington, right? And the, the, how many times have you heard the stories or seen in person how much Washington runs on flattery, obsequiousness, and ridiculous butt kissing. And just the amount of, you know, you got somebody, you, you've, you've heard, I'm sure, and have seen, as I have, the how many, uh, let me tell you something, America. You know how people say, do you know who I am? And you think, nobody really ever says that. Well, they say it. Let me tell you something. They say it. And by the way, if you have to say 
do you know who I am? It's too late, right? Because if they don't know at the beginning that you're a very important person and that your room at this luxury resort should already be ready because do you know who I am? If you're already there, everyone hates you and your French fries will all be spit on on every room service order. You've you've already reached that point. What Leibovich does with Trump here and discussing this is he, he is hitting Washington where it is, which is a society of sycophants and careerist turds who value their own reelection and celebrity over everything else. We got reader mail. Oh boy. And up first, we have <laughs> like a separate complete file of reader mail of people writing to correct you, Chris. Yes, I attributed the famous quote hit him where they ain't to Pee Wee Reese, who as many of you wrote in to say, it was not Pee Wee Reese. And I incorrectly said that Pee Wee Reese played for the Red Sox when, in fact, Pee Wee Reese played for the Dodgers, first in Brooklyn, then in Los Angeles. Or Daryl says he almost drove his car into the ditch when he heard you attribute that quote to Pee Wee Reese. And here's here's what I know. Oh, I love this one from Thomas Stegey. Hi, Chris. While Pee Wee Reese was in the Boston Red Sox farm system. Now, here we're talking about a guy who played baseball in the 50s. While Pee Wee Reese was in the Boston Red Sox farm system, he never played for the parent team. He spent his whole major league career with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And it was we, Willie Keeler, who said, hit him where they ain't, other than that great podcast. So that was, but when I say that the, that Colin had to create a separate file just to contain, and by the way, everyone was nice. Almost every, I think everyone was nice, except for the guy who said, nice try, Chris, as if I was trying to get pull a fast one, but Yes, and, and I will further tell you, I have misremembered that quote m- multiple times for years. I have a blind spot in my brain about the quote. I have been corrected for it before. I apologize for my inability to remember it, but it is. Wee Willie Keeler deserves credit for it. I shouldn't have attributed it to Pee Wee Reese, and it's a great thing about politics. It's a, it's a very useful quote about politics, not baseball, because or and baseball. Because the goal is not to be like everybody else, but to be the to be the different one. When you see everybody lining up on one side of things, maybe move over to another place. I will also say that this confirms something I have long known. I am a baseball fan, but real baseball fans are even more pedantic than Star Wars fans. They're even more pedantic. I don't know of a, of a fan fan universe where pedantry is more celebrated. It's like it's it is a, a a universe of comic book guys. Actually, worst episode ever, and I appreciate why that is so, and you know why it is so. You know what what baseball fans what brings baseball fans together a lot. It's precise and it's recordable. It's a knowable thing. The the data going back a hundred and fifty oh, years. Oh, can you answer a question for me? I'll try. Okay, so my husband was telling me that his grandmother who is the namesake of our daughter used to like hand score baseball games yep and i was asking like what is the point of hand scoring a game as opposed to just like watching the scoreboard like what's what do you know by doing that that you don't know so baseball is is the is the hardest professional sport to play because hitting major league pitching is the hardest thing to do but baseball ultimately is very challenging because it is a game of being ready. It is long periods of inaction punctuated by extreme action. So 
Have you ever heard Ronald Reagan's famous story about when the telegraph went dead and he was calling a baseball game on the radio in Iowa? No. So this is one of my favorites. So <laughs> Reagan. You better be sure it was Ronald Reagan. You're attributing this as, correctly. So I think it was Wee Willie Keeler who was up at that. <laughs> but, but so Reagan was starting out and he had gotten, and he talked about this. By the way, you can look up these interviews that he, his valedictory interviews, right? And he loved talking about his broadcasting time. And his interview with Tom Brokaw is actually pretty Pretty great. But anyway, uh, Reagan had finally gotten signed on. He wanted to be a radio broadcaster, and he had been a jock in high school, and so sports was the logical place for him to go. So he's calling a game as if it's live, that he's at the game. And I I don't know if you remember in the movie Bull Durham, they got a guy with a wood block there so that the it's to make it sound like the crack of the bat and playing a recording of the, of the crowd roar. I don't know whether Reagan had all that, but he was – Creating for listeners of this Iowa uh, radio station the the feeling that he was calling it live, right? But really, he was reading a telegraph wire that is producing, and then this happened, and and so this would be like score how you keep score in baseball. There's a ground, and there's it's a code that you use to keep score. So the line goes dead, and he's got a guy at the plate, and there's only one thing that doesn't affect the game. A foul ball. Everything else has to be scored, and it has an effect on the game, right? You get a hit, you get a walk, you ground out. There's only one thing that a batter can do that doesn't affect the score of the game and the run of the score, the scorekeeping, which is foul it off. So Reagan just has the guy stand there and foul it off for, um, I don't know what, 20 minutes or whatever, or this um, amazing. So he's spinning it into this amazing yard. Can you believe it, folks? He's still fouling it off, fighting off the pitcher, making all this. And then the line comes back on, and he was struck out on the next pitch. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I've always loved that one. Keeping score at, at baseball games is a cool thing to do because it keeps you in the game. Okay. Right? So as you're watching, you're like, okay, that happened, and then that happened, and then that happened. Because what happens at a baseball game? You know the baseball game. It's boring. You're talking to your friends. You're going to the concession stand 20 times. You are walking around. You blah blah. And then all of a sudden, it's like you look up, and somebody has just crushed a home run, and the game has been upended. And da 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 da. You can't enjoy that moment as much. <laughs> you, can't, you can't. You can't. Eliana is so excited about this. She's kicking her heels up. You can't in, enjoy the game fully. Unless you feel the suspense building. It's like for people who like, I don't want to say this pejoratively. Is your husband a soccer fan? Ugh, unfortunately. My my condolences. But for soccer to be interesting, you have to like enjoy all of the times they don't score. Yeah. And score keeping, keeping score in, in a- I don't a, enjoy when they don't score. I don't enjoy when they do score. I don't enjoy it's, in between. It's terrible. Okay, well, the- Chris Correction is like a perfect preview to Jennifer's note who says, Hi there. Call me crazy, but I think my best friend would be a match made in heaven for Chris Starwalt. Is he single? If he is, and he's up for being introduced to someone new, then I'm happy to facilitate the connection. I think she would check all of the boxes for Chris, plus the two of them would have so much in common. She's 46, a perfect Southern belle that any man would be proud to introduce to his family, has a successful career at Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville, and is as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. I know you don't know me, but trust me, my best friend would make the perfect match for Chris. Looking forward to your reply. Sincerely, Jennifer in Atlanta. I love this note. Sadly, Chris is not on the market. Uh, well, I'm ve- I'm very, I'm certainly flattered. flattered. I'm certainly flattered that you would ask, but I'm very happily taken 
Jessica is the bee's knees and, uh, and to me could, could never be improved on. She is perfect to me. <laughs> I can attest that she is very she, wonderful. She's, 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 a, she's a cool, Funny, she's a cool chick, man. Stylish. Knows the good tanning drops, <laughs> all that jazz. I think hers is. Jazz. I think hers is natural. She is a. She's yes, an she outdoor. Is. She's an outdoor person. Oh, yes, wow. for sure. Okay, well, thank that, you for thinking of me. I love that me. note. Yes. Okay, and then this one was for me. I love from Jean, <laughs> Eliana, and Chris. Omg, your discussion of Zubas was great and made me think of stories that my these then, are the pants. These are the pants. Yes, right? the Zuba pants that my then seventy-year-old dad would tell about going to his high school reunions in Harvey, Illinois, and meeting up with his pal Snooky Starzik, <laughs> who always wore Zubas no matter what. And yes, Snooky Starzik is a real name. I know it sounds like a great character from a Mike Royko column, i.e. Slats Grobnik entered the bar with his pal Snooky Starzik, or possibly an Elmore Leonard novel or something, but oh. it was real, although Dad did say that his real friends called him Snook. Loved the sco- scones discussion, too, although <laughs> I hate them. Just got back from a trip to Scotland visiting our daughter, and all she and my wife would talk about were how the scones were good here, terrible over there, etc. Come on, they taste like a lump of baking soda. That's from Jean in Jean, Arizona. I, I'm, I may get it wrong, but as a person who has been called Chris Steerwalt for much of my life, I, I, you, you'll forgive me. Jean Nays, K-N-I-A-Z, who lives in Tempe, Arizona now. And let me tell you something, Jean Nays. You're on it, right? It is. They are terrible. And also, my dad grew up in Illinois. Now, he grew up down in Springfield. And when I was growing up and meeting his friends, now, my dad, who was called Bees, and then his his dearest friend growing up was just Lou. But the other the other gang, there was Stormy, Sniffy, Bees was my dad, and I forget who else, but they all have these nicknames. And then they're adult men. And they're talking to each other. It's like, hey, Stormy. Hey, Sniffy. Hey, Bees. So these nicknames are a real thing. And I thank you for your curation of these names. And you're pressing on the great parts of my brains, mentioning Mike Royko and Elmore Leonard, both of whom I loved, particularly Elmore Leonard. So thank thank you, Gene. And I wonder what we need a nickname for Gene. Gene Nays. So he's maybe he's the... Zuba Gene. Zuba Gene. Okay, Zuba Gene. All right, there we go. All right, Zuba Gene. Thank you very much. It is now time for Chris's favorite time of the week, where I am forced to say something nice, but Chris, as always, leads by example. Okay. I, I love animal stories. I love animal stories. And the, one of my favorite things that the Wall Street Journal used to do was they're bright on the front page very often, an animal story. CBS Evening News hit it out of the park with their story. Uh, let's take a little listen right here. A lot of dogs think they're human, but Dexter takes it to a whole nother level, to the point where I can now safely say, I have seen everything. Dexter lives here in Uray, Colorado where for the past few years, this bicolor, bipedal Britney Spaniel has been turning heads wherever he goes. Dexter's owner, Kenty Pasek, says this isn't a trick she taught. It's an adaptation he made after a near-death experience. How much do you love Dexter? He's adorable. And he's... I wish it. I want to see a wheelchair pick of Dexter. Well, they have. I mean, the the package shows it all, and he's as a little dog. He and he's in his little dog wheelchair, and so Dexter just is rolling out, walking on its hind legs. I I, I think Dexter might be able to ride a bicycle. 
I love this dog. I love that CBS took the time to do this story. I love animal stories. Go Dexter. I like Britney Spaniels. Yay. My favorite item of the week goes back to, I got like really into the whole, you know, college search back in the day. Cause like, you know, anybody who- Where'd you go to school again? I was going to say, <laughs> anybody who like ends up at Yale was like a freaking psychopath and like doing the college search and ranking. So my dad used to joke like, you know, you could be a college counselor at like 19 cause you know all these stats. So- I saw this headline and it amused me. New York Times, Columbia loses its number two spot in the U.S. news rankings. U.S. News and World Report announced that it had unranked the Ivy League University after being unable to verify its data. And then if you go in, basically it's a Columbia math professor that blew the whistle on like Columbia feeding U.S. News and World Report. Uh, data that was like totally unverified and they were like oh yeah you know we can't verify anything we're telling you they've been yanked from all they were ranked two. they were pulled out of the rankings entirely and then I really liked the quote from this guy here Colin Diver I had hoped and still hoped that this episode would bring much more attention to the foibles and the failures of the ranking system, said Colin Diver, the former president of Reed College, who has written a book, Breaking Ranks, about the college ranking industry. Unfortunately, most of higher education, especially the elite part, publicly criticizes the rankings right and left, and yet they cooperate with them. So I thought that was awesome. They're all a load of crap. And, uh, And also, this math professor at Columbia, his name is Michael... Thaddeus, and he looks just like oh my god, look serious math genius. Look, his hair, his hair is just uh, so I'm gonna include a link into the story about him too. So that was wonderful. That's Uh, a baseball fan if I've ever seen one right there. (laughs) Michael Thaddeus, there was a separate story about him that, and the headline was U.S. News ranked Columbia number two, but a math professor has his doubts. A professor identified several data discrepancies that Columbia University provided to U.S. News and World Report, renewing the debate over the value and accuracy of college rankings. So, Professor Thaddeus, you have done something good for America. That's great. That's mm-hmm. that's not as good as a Spaniel that can walk on, a Britney Spaniel that can walk on a time legs, almost but that's so. pretty, that's Close. almost that good. Close. That's almost that good. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, Email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts with an S dot com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.